Uh, today's message evokes some strong images, I think. It's called Game of Thrones is the title. This title is not uniquely mine. Uh, if you didn't know, there's a slightly popular TV show with the same namesake. And um, I know someone was saying that they're deeply troubled by this title today or um, anxious about it. Um, I was tempted to show you graphic images to start out, but I said, no, that would not be edifying in any way, shape, or form. And I choose this title because of what it evokes, right? Uh, in common culture, this is a, a hit, an HBO hit, right? Because it portrays the battling for power, the, the jockeying to sit on a throne, and how the outcomes for a kingdom and all of its people will be drastically different based upon who sits on the throne. That's this show, whether you've seen it or not, and it's self-evident in its name, its title. It's, it's a playing or a game of trying to sit on a seat of power and exert some sort of influence. And that's what I hope to convey in this message. I'm going to talk about different thrones, of course, but it's parallel in, in some of its shapes, in some of its ideas. Okay? Second Chronicles chapter 7 is our text. We're going to read verses 15 to 22. We find ourselves back in 2 Chronicles 7. Okay, 2 Chronicles 7. Reading from verse 15. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For those of you that are catching up, okay, we've read this before in terms of the first part of 2 Chronicles 7. Uh, a temple was built and dedicated and, and Solomon was offering this prayer and asking God to turn his eyes towards it and for him to really just establish himself in that temple. And this is God's answer, right? Verse 15 again. My eyes shall be opened, and God speaking, my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. And he's speaking this to Solomon and all of the people. For now, now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. What a great promise this is, right? And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I've commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. As for this house which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why? Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them from the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, He has brought all this adversity on them. Amen. To give you the backdrop in its full form, Chapters 6 and 7, as this extravagant temple was being built by Solomon, he inherited the mission from 
Father David, right, from his dad. Materials, treasures, everything is brought in. And finally, it is built. And it is consecrated before the Lord. An altar is established. Solomon stands and kneels eventually, extends his hands and prays this elaborate prayer. God answers by fire and licks up the offering that is presented to him. And everyone fell flat on their faces, if you didn't remember. Right? Everyone is consecrated and prostrated and just like, I can't believe this. No one can stand because there is a Shekinah, a glory, a cloud of God that has just permeated the space and everyone is awestruck. Jaws to the floor, faces to the floor, and they are just thankful and just repeating the glory and the worship and worth of God over and over. You are good. Your loving kindness is forever. And they are ecstatic and thankful. Right? And Solomon has this seven-day festival. And on the eighth day, after sacrificing thousands of animals, on the eighth day they have a holy assembly. And they just bring themselves before God. And then they finally disperse everyone to their house. Solomon goes into his chamber. And then God says to him, Thank you for that, basically. But if I dry things up, if I send the locusts, if all of this comes and your bodies are boiling with sickness and you will pray and still seek my face, I'm going to bring healing. And that was the last message that I left off of, even when it hurts. We praise on the peaks, but we also pray in the valley. It was understanding the contrast of great mountaintop successes and glorious moments of corporate worship, but understanding when all is stripped away, when sickness comes, when prayers are dried up and not answered, and we are in the deepest, darkest valley and feeling alone. In that moment, God is still asking, Will you pray? I want something different for my people. Will you pray? Because if you do in the valley, I'm going to bring restoration and healing. That was where we left off that message, even when it hurts. And God says to Solomon, My name is here. I'll establish it. I'll consecrate it. This is my house now. Thank you for that, right? And then he, he, he begins to, to not just give promises to Solomon, he begins to give a succession of warnings to him in the house of Israel. Right? And he begins to turn the, the conversation once again from the temple to the inner man, to the person on the inside. And he begins to turn the conversation and say, okay, this is my house. My name will be there. I've consecrated. Thank you for that. I love it. I love the paint job. I love the structure. But I want to know something deeper. Will you follow my statues and commandments? And how he qualifies that is he turns the conversation to idols. If you will forsake all idols, and if you will follow after what I have commanded through your ancestors, through your father, I'm going to make sure that this house is established. Your throne, don't worry about it. Your last name, I'll take care of it. But I want to know something before that. Thank you for the house. Thank you for the gifts. But I still want to know who sits here. Who sits here? And there are three places involved in our passage, if you, if you didn't notice, and I'll, and I'll bring them to you, right? These are the places that are involved. 
And I'm going to say, first, it's a heart throne. Secondly, it's a royal throne, the palace. And thirdly, it's a worship throne or the temple. Okay? And in these spaces, the inner man, the royal palace, and in the temple of worship, God is bringing all three entities into the conversation now. Because the temple was built by Solomon, in all of its glory, fire came down, cloud was filling, and a glorious assembly was in the temple, and Solomon was in the palace as well. Right? This was actually the reason for Solomon wanting to build the temple because he was looking at his palace, his chambers, and he was saying this, like, I have all of this, and doesn't God deserve more than this? And that's really what instigated in his heart really to build that temple for the Lord that was extravagant, and this is now done. The palace is done, the temple is done, and if you read on, Solomon had all of these great accomplishments. The queen of Sheba would come and admire the palace, admire the temple, admire the wisdom given to Solomon, and all was just great. Right? And in this moment of our passage, God takes the palace and the temple and He begins to say there's another primary throne here. Not just the worship altar, not just the royal one you sit on and bring these edicts for the king, but there is a throne in the inner man and this is the one I want to zero in on right now. This is the place where my statutes, where my heart, this is the place where my word must dwell. And on this throne... There can dwell no other. And he begins to turn the conversation, and this is essentially what he says. The heart throne is the gatekeeper to the other two. Right? Because if I sit here, he's saying, like if the kingdom of God, the statutes, the heart, and the throne of God is on the throne of your heart, the other two will be fine. Right? I'll establish your last name. Just like I said to your father, right? You're not going to lack a man from your family lineage to sit on this throne. Just as I promised with that, don't worry about that. Your legacy, your last name, I'll establish it. But I want to know first if you'll keep my commandments. If this heart throne of yours will be reserved for me. This temple that you built, great. I gave you fire. I gave you clouds of glory. I've told you time and time again, I love it. I've consecrated it. My name is there. But I want you to know I can topple this in a day. People can walk by this temple one day and say, what has the Lord done? Because it will be utter ruins. All of the money, all of the time, all of the, the, the energy and effort spent to build this structure. Thank you for that. But I want you to know, Solly, that this temple can fall in a day. That I will be worshipped with or without it. That I will lead my, my people with or without a royal throne. And this is the conversation that God is having with Solomon. Because the heart throne is the gatekeeper, right? Like God appreciated, and He deeply received the temple. Like, you know, we, we, I, I rehashed some of our, our passages right before. God's, God received it, you know. He, he was thankful for all of that. And as you, you see that, He's saying, like, my name's there, uh, you spared no cost, and I know you did it for my glory, and I know you, you're worshiping me through the construction of this temple. And, and God genuinely received that, right? That was a good thing, that they built the temple. But what comes out in my passage, in this passage here, is structures are important to God, 
but only peripherally. Okay? Like the, the temple, the palace, these structures were important to him. Like he appreciated that and he moved and he worked through the structures, but only peripherally so. Second tier at best, third, fourth tier. Like back burner to back burner. It's like the structures, thank you for that. Like you spared no expense. I love it. But that's not primary, right? And it, it flips our eyes, doesn't it? Because it turns our eyes from seeing the external to moving to the inward spaces of our, of our heart of worship. And this is where God continually turns. He turns the emphasis from structure to heart, right? And in verses like 19 through 22 of our passage, He's defining what he's meaning by forsaking his statutes and commandments, right? In verse 19, if you turn away from uh, and uh, forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and this is how he defines it, and you go and serve other gods and worship them. Okay. And so that aspect of upholding the statutes and the commandments of God had everything to do with worship, right? to the expulsion of idols in our lives. And Old Testament idols and modern day idols, you know, they, they might look different. They're not represented in wood statues or stone carvings. It's, it's different, right? But idols still exist today, right? They're in, in, in sharper forms and they're more domineering because, you know, it's so elusive. It seems like it's got this veneer over it. It's this wolf in sheep's clothing. It's, it's a demon in, in, in the clothing of an angel, right? And it comes like it's great for us, and it comes packaged as the blessing of God, but it really is the snare of the devil trying to take the people of God and cut them at their core. And he brings it through affluence. He brings it through the different means. And he's saying, yeah, this is God's blessing over your life. And he distracts our worship through them, right? And it's not so clear-cut as a wooden image on the mantle. And it comes in the form of dollar signs and accolades, and it comes in so many other shades and, and ways, right? But they still exist, and the conversation is still alive today for God, right? As He looks at us, as He looks at me, as He looks at, at, at His people, you know, particularly let's, let's personalize the story and, and Him taking our church, City Chapel, from where we were five years ago and bringing us through the journey from the photography studio to the rented facility in Irvine and here now in Anaheim to, to where we have been able to at least separate and, and designate a space of worship and build it out in a way that we wanted to. Like all of this is, is, is great, but as you take that, that story, that theme of what God is saying to Solomon here, okay, like the temple, I, I, I want all of that. And I like all of that. The legacy that you built through your life, great. I can be honored through that. But what is of primary importance is who's sitting here on the seat of the inner man, right? In that spirit seat of what drives us, of what helps us to set up a view of the world, a value system, what makes us tick and go forward in life, that motivation, the core, that. God wants to know what's driving there, right? And He's saying to Solomon, if you will not have any idols and you will keep and uphold my statutes and commandments, all that other stuff that you think about, like these years that you spent building that temple, all of the effort and money that was spent building that palace, I'll, I'll, 
I'll establish it. I can make it stand. But I want you to know that I'm looking at your heart. Right? And I guess that's what turned uh, me, you know, as I was preparing this message, to kind of look and to look at some old things that I wrote as we started the church. Things that not maybe I completely forgot, but in a sense got sidetracked from. And for life happening, it happens to all of us, doesn't it? Like you started out with a job and you had this great motivation, but suddenly after like three months in, you, like what happened to the purity of how you started? Suddenly you're in the, in the middle and thick of all of this political gamesmanship and you, you forgot why you went into this career field in the first place. I mean, life happens. Like marriage, you know, you get into a relationship and this is great and you had all of these great motivations to build uh, this, uh, this relationship that honored God, but then life happened and we get distracted from the main thing. It happens all of the time, right? It happens all of the time. Kids come into the picture. Before kids came in, I had this idea of what it would be like to be a father and what it would mean to shepherd an individual from birth to adulthood and really grow into the next generation. And suddenly life happened, diapers happened, shopping happened, crying happened, sleeplessness happened. And like, wait a minute, like, I, I forgot all about that, right? As life unfolds, it's so easy to get distracted from the core of our mission, of our mission. And do you remember when you gave your life to Christ? Like, what were the prayers in that moment? Like, were, were, were they small prayers or large prayers? I can kind of guarantee that they were slightly large. That when you gave your life to Jesus, it was a desire to want to live your entire life for His glory that you were turning from your old ways and wanting to live a life that would honor Him. And you wanted to be a witness for Jesus. The healing that you were experiencing in that moment, you wanted others to feel and experience as well. The salvation that you received, you wanted others also to walk in that freedom, to be saved by Christ. And I can imagine in the moments when we gave our life to Jesus and that first love flooded into our hearts, we were filled with grandness of vision, and it was the kingdom of God that was at our forefront. And as the Christian life happens, what happens to that? Sometimes we get distracted from that. Building a church is the same way. You start out wanting to influence a community and taking the gospel from the inside and sending it outward, not trying to cram everybody in, right? And the motivation of that starting, suddenly what happens to that? It begins to blur and fade because, again... Stuff happens. We get distracted from that. Right? And so Solomon is building this grand temple. This palace is, is already constructed. And I can imagine before the first shovel went in the ground, before the first stone was laid or the first pillar was erected, that Solomon had the grandness of worship. God, here. Your name will be worshipped. Your, your, your glory will be upheld. And your people will be driven through the feet of this altar, just sacrificing what they have, and you will be at the center. And you can imagine this king and all of the leaders and people had this idea of why they were building this temple, right? And God's reminding him, like, like this temple structure, that's not the main thing. The cedars and the gold and the stones, that's not it. 
right here. Like if you establish this first, that will happen. That will be established. And so I kind of want to parallel a couple of things, right? So the hard throne is pretty self-explanatory, right? But I want to parallel palace because the imagery that God gives to Solomon is not lacking anyone to sit on the throne. And what that means, especially for the lineage of a monarchy, it's talking about legacy. Like when in ancient kingdoms, when you had dynasties, like you had a, uh, it was so important to, to have birth, to give birth to a son because that carried on the family name and the, the lineage or the dynasty, right? And so for, for David to sit as king and Solomon to sit in his place, it was imperative for Solomon to have a son to also sit in his place and for his grandson to sit in his son's place and a great-grandson to sit in his grandson's place and to go on. And it was a family name and a lineage, right? And so in the palace, what you have is the imagery or the idea of a family legacy. And if we're honest with ourselves, don't we all want a legacy of some sort? I mean, the Bible talks about, you know, like how we should leave an inheritance for our children's children, how we build something for the glory of God and we impart it to the generations that will come after us. This is a good thing, right? It's a good thing that we save and we invest and we do things beyond our own our own lives, the space of, of what will bookend day one and the last one but we do things for our posterity, right? That we have the mind to look in generations beyond this. That's important for the child of God, right? And so I want to equate palace to that legacy of our lives. What is the legacy we want to leave, you know? Like the career field that you choose, why you save, why you, you want to live in a certain space or place, like these things that drive our motivation. If you were to unpackage all of that at life's end, what do you want to see remain? Like why do we want to have children? What is all of this hard work for? In the end, if Scripture holds true, we're not going to take any of it with us. Like, you know, greedy people might be buried with all of their money, right? Like, it's not dirt. I want to be buried with $100 bills, right? Like, I, it's, it's just going to rot there. It's, it's not, it's not going to go past the grave. And so all of the hard work that we, we exert in life, ultimately we believe that our life will make a difference beyond the space of what is ours. Right? Isn't that what drives us ultimately when we really think big picture? We want a legacy beyond our days. And for Solomon, that drove him. You know, as a king, he definitely wanted the, the promise that was given to his dad, David, to, to, to be fulfilled, for it to continue on. And he wanted the throne to be established. And that was a prayer that he had. That was a calling. That was a mission of his life. And God's saying, okay, you know your legacy? That's actually in my hands. I'll, I, I will make sure of it. You will not lack a man to sit on this throne that is yours. But first here, this one. Right? And the temple, you can equate to a couple of things, I think. Maybe practically you can equate to our church. Right? A, a temple of a space of worship. But I think you can also equate to other structures that we build for God in, as a form of worship. Sometimes you can build your, your careers or other things that are symbolic or physical and you build structures or things in your life that is a form of your worship to Him. 
that you're doing it because you believe in God and you want to honor Him through that. And you believe as though by constructing this thing, God will be honored and worshipped through it. That you will draw other people closer to God because of this effort. And it can be pictured in that way as well. right? So you can think of it practically like our church. Or you can even make it a little bit more symbolic, talking about the, the structures that we build in our lives as a worship to God. Now those things, this church, the worship structures, those things are established by God and God says, I will consecrate it and use it for the glory of my name. Right? I can do that. But again, it has to go through that gate through the, the heart throne, if you first establish it here. And so those are the parallels I, I, I want to give. And I, I want to say that God can give or take away all things. That all things are in His hands. All things, right? And one of the, the, one of the great lies of the devil is this. That we can become self-made men, self-made people. Like, if you work hard, like, I did it, I earned it, I achieved it. And I can be proud of myself for achieving this, for doing this, establishing this for myself. I'm a self-made man. That's one of the greatest lies of the devil. I mean, there's elements of truth because God wants us to work hard in our lives. You know, He wants us to plan and to be good stewards and to do all of those things. Like, He just doesn't plop things. He does. Grace is when He gives us stuff we don't deserve, right? But there's an aspect of the Christian life where we build through the tools and the, and the resources that God gives. And that's talking about a spirit of excellence and of wisdom and of really just understanding what God has given and, and leveraging all of that and maximizing it for His growth. That's a part of the Christian life. But when you twist that idea and the devil convinces us that you can do whatever you want with what you have because you earned it. Right? That you can get all of the glory for what you have because you earned it. Like you're a self-made man. Right? And it moves us into a space that twists a truth. Because the reality is, in the end, when all is said and done, like the final buck, like where that lands, right? For all of human history and every single life that will ever walk this earth. It is ultimately God choosing to give and take away. Like that is a big picture, like sovereignty. Like apart from God saying, yes, I'll give you breath. <laughs> apart from God saying, I'll give you ability, capacity, intellect. Because in a moment, I can make you dumb. In a moment, I can make you a cripple. In a moment, I can snap and take your life away. In a moment, boils can come over your body. In a moment, your children can be taken away. In a moment, this house that you have furnished all so well can topple to the ground. Like we have no control over weather. Like as a farmer, I control how many seeds go in the ground, but I have no control over the sun or the locusts. No control over precipitation. And ultimately, yeah, hard work. I won't harvest if I don't plant. That's true. But no matter how much I plant, if God doesn't send rain, I don't have anything anyway, right? And so ultimately, I'm saying hard work is a part of the picture. Building is a part of the picture. But the final say, the end game, is I need to understand God gives and God takes away. Yes, I must do. I must make. I must achieve. I must climb. 
But in the end, I always must acknowledge and I always must submit. Like this is the end game. That we must never fool ourselves into believing that we can take credit for what we have, for what we've attained. All right, like, let me take you back to the Look at verse 20. Like, I will uproot, God's saying, right? You from my land, which I have given you, and this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb, a byword amongst the people, right? You go a couple of verses earlier to verse 18 even, right? Then I will establish your royal throne, and I, that I covenanted with your father David, right? Like, you see the fo- focus here, don't, don't, don't we? Like, we see it. it. It is clear. It is God saying, like, I decide. Like, uh, my control and my power is to that degree, God is saying. And if you will establish my commandments and my statutes and my will on your heart, if you will have no other idols before me, all that stuff you build, all that stuff you want to remain after you're gone, I can take care of that. And it really teaches us, and I wrote this as a sub-point under the, the second main point, God's actions or inactions are central to our attainment of things or loss of them, whether they be possessions or positions. Right? And this is exactly why God must be on the throne of our hearts. It's not a coincidence that the first of the Ten Commandments is that you shall have no other gods before me. It's not a coincidence that the second of the Ten Commandments is that you should have no idols before me. Like this is primary to God. Like when He thinks about leading His people, this is first tier, first cut, first thing. Right here. Even Jesus, when being asked, what's the greatest commandment, teacher? What was his response? Love God with everything, with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Like all, everything you have, make sure that culminates in an expression of love towards God. That was Jesus' answer. And we call him teacher. He's our Lord and Savior. He is the one that we are following. And this was the greatest thing that he could say when asked, what's the greatest commandment? That's the first thing that came out of his mouth. So we have to understand that this, this is where God's heart is moving. So I'll, I'll bring this to a close, guys. Praise Him, you guys come back, all right? Um, let me give you this one image, and I'll end it with these two statements, right? And the image is this. Going back to this, the heart throne, right? This is it. This is the image I want to leave with you today. Like, in this game of thrones... Like, when one person sits on a throne, there is an outcome for the kingdom and the people. When another person sits on the throne, there is a vastly different outcome for the kingdom and its people. This is what I'm talking about, okay? And so the throne that I'm talking about right now, right, the throne that I'm talking about is this one. And we all have it, right? We, there's this chair. It's a chair of royalty. It is plush. It is just overlaid with materials and, and just speckled with gems. It is a throne of thrones, and it's right here. It's in everybody's heart, right? And there is, a, there is somebody sitting on this throne, and it's the person in the driver's seat calling the shots, really saying this is the color of your world, right? And for most people, it is ourselves. 
Like we're driving our lives. They, they live wherever they want to live. They decide whatever they want to do. Right? And if they like it, then we'll do it. If they don't like it, it's like, you know what? I'm the filter of my life. And for a lot of people, they sit on the throne. But maybe let me give you some imagery. Other people are completely driven by money. And that is the final thing. The greatest dollar. Right? And you know that show Shark Tank? I, I love that show, right? Because it's got a, some great business kind of like insights and stuff. But the guy that usually sits in the middle, Kevin O'Leary, right? What does he always say? He loves money, right? That's, that's the only thing I care about, he says. Money, right? And to all of these would-be uh, uh, company owners as an investor, that's what he says. Just like, where's the money at? How am I going to get my money back? Right? That's the driving person on his throne. It is a dollar bill. It is, it is a dollar sign. Other people are driven by reputation. Long as other people think well of them, like that's like I just want that, like you know. And we're driven by so many things, pleasing people, or and you can just name everything in the book. There's somebody or something sitting there, and this is the deciding factor. Because what I have for you as two last statements is this: when idols, and what I'll say by that is anything other than the worship of God. When idols stand in our hearts, everything else important will eventually fall. Eventually. That's a guarantee. That's not my guarantee. That's a scriptural guarantee. And so investments, building a, a house, living in a neighborhood, like having my kids get a certain type of education, like all of that, like, okay, but none of that is secure. There's no security in the stock market, right? Ultimate security, the most perfect investment is one into the kingdom of God and the heart of God. So when idols stand in our hearts, everything else important will eventually fall. And secondly, the key to legacy is desiring to live for and to honor God. That's the key to legacy. Like when we think about what our name will stand for, when all is said and done, what we'll have on our tombstone, so to speak, what will live beyond us, what will outlive our days, the key to that is living for the glory and honor of God. Everything else will take care of itself if that becomes our primary driving angle, motivation. May that be so. Amen? Amen. Amen.